All right. Well, welcome to Central Vineyard, friends. Uh, wow, that was great. I, uh, I didn't get all of it, but that's because I'm not a kid, I guess. But those motions are really good. I was, you know, wondering, like, some of them, like, what is your motion for patience? You know, how do you do, how do, you do a quick motion to symbolize patience? I'm like, for me, patience is, like, dropping everything and taking a nap in a way, and that's hard to do in a quick symbol, unless, you know. Anyway, I want to let the kids transitional, because these, like, little transitional elements are super chaotic. So I'm just going to kill time for about a minute. Oh, something that totally blessed me today was to see our artwork that the kids were doing. And I don't know about this, like, cultural appropriation of Jedi lore juxtaposed with the scriptures, but uh, it works. <laughs> but we're actually going to be talking a lot about assimilation versus appropriation. You're going to think, oh, Jeff's going all politically correct. No, I've just been reading Galatians a lot. And Galatians is all about like how to, um, how to make Paul really mad. This is one of the things. Galatians is a fiery book. And it's bizarre because it's the book where we get the fruit of the Spirit, you know, gentleness, kindness, patience. But it's a book where it, in one way of reading it would see Paul really angry and impatient. But the problem is when we read words, you can read them a hundred different ways. I'm just thinking of all the different ways you can say cool, like cool, cool. Cool, dude. You know, and they all mean something different. Or dude. Dude means what are you doing? Or dude is like thank you. Or yeah, whatever. So I'm just saying like tone of voice matters. But I do think we do see Paul get to the edge of not crossing it in Galatians. And I think one of the greatest uh, lessons to learn from Galatians is what would provoke this person who wants to see Christ go to all cultures, what really would provoke Paul to send this extraordinarily terse letter of Galatians? Now, uh, the issue with this book of Galatians has been for a lot of people is uh, it's seen as almost a warm-up for the book of Romans. And uh, a lot of people have read Galatians, especially if you're from the evangelical or Protestant tradition. You think, like, well, Martin Luther wrote these books to uh, respond to the, uh, you know, the state churches or Roman Catholic churches or whatnot. And actually, you know, Galatians was written to people who had completely different concerns than uh, German people 500 years ago. Believe it or not, in ancient Galatia, Gauls populated by Gauls, which were probably the French, in ancient Galatia, they had different concerns than they had in uh, Reformation area, era Germany. And so that causes a lot of debates because one measure of orthodoxy among some Christians, one measure that if you get it or you don't get it, is do you interpret Paul to be utilizing words that mean exactly what they would have meant in reformation era germany or not versus what was paul writing to the greater people now uh what we're going to try to look at is we're going to try to just we're going to start with the end of galatians today and we're periodically going to be skipping to the end 
Because an important thing that I think uh, Scott McKnight at Northern Seminary has done a brilliant job showing this is that if you want to understand Paul, you've got to start at the end and work your way back. Because Paul was writing letters, he wasn't trying to write a doctrinal treatise that answered every question, or he would have answered every question. In fact, we get snippets of doctrine and bits of doctrine at the front end of every one of Paul's books. But through those books, we see different things being emphasized depending on the crowd he was writing. So one person I heard describe Paul as basically giving footnotes on how to live out Jesus. So you presume the Gospels or the oral traditions, as they were then, of the Jesus stories. And Paul is like adding, adding some illuminating understanding of how to actually live it out. But every doctrinal idea that's highlighted in Paul is meant to generally motivate people towards whatever he's talking about at the end of the book. For instance, Romans is a fundraising letter where he is trying to convince this Gentile church to financially provide for the church that did not leave Jerusalem after the ascension of Christ. He said, and they all lost their jobs, and so and incident, incidentally, that church would send out different groups that would try to make sure that all the Gentile Christians were acting Jewish enough, you know? And Paul is saying, well, these guys are broke. Um, he lays down all this brilliant doctrine. The point is, be generous, because you and these guys are the same family. And if your parents ran out of money and need someone to take care of them, you would take care of them. Well, these are your kind of adopted parents, so take care of them. So I... The idea of generosity towards people I didn't feel really appreciated by never occurred to me as an application of the Book of Romans after hearing the book taught on since 1979. But the book, that's the book. That's what happens when you read a book backwards. You understand what, so what we're gonna do is a little experiment, is we're gonna begin with the back of Galatians, or the big therefore of the Book of Galatians, and then we're going to reflect on each of the ideas at the beginning of the book and saying, how does this idea make space for this reality? And it might be a little bit of a bumpy road because uh, this is going to involve some crowdsourced experimentation, like meditating on the early chapters and say, what about this idea, if I believed it in my heart, would, would help me to grow in more patience or kindness or gentleness? Or what about this doctrine somehow empowers self-control and that is not something that you're going to be able to just google very quickly it's something you got to chew and uh, wrestle with and something you're going to have to like take time in silence and say holy spirit open up my imagination how do these things relate and in that process we're actually making space for those realities to be born into our lives so um, I want to invite Constance to come here and share the scripture on the fruit of the spirit. And you, and you can, I'll get, a, you can take your mask off, Constance, so people can hear you. And then, oh, there's, where's the handheld? There it is. You might want to make sure it's on. And why I wanted Constance, I love this reading, is she's reading a list. I want to embarrass you a little bit. Let me see. Let's see. Okay, I never tap the top of a microphone at night. 
So the reason I'm saying this is Constance is actually going to be reading a list of attributes I've seen grow in her progressively every day since she was born. Hope that didn't phase you too much. Thank you. Okay, so it's Galatians 5, 22 through 26. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind, this kind of fruits in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living in this um, since we are um, living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Constance. So, uh, Paul wrote this letter to essentially disrupt the impending marriage of uh, cultural assimilation in the idea of soul transformation. The gospel transforms souls, and the gospel redeems culture, and the gospel may motivate people to code switch, to communicate the message of love to different people, but the gospel is dead set against cultural assimilation and assimilating cultures. This idea that there is a Christian subculture or Christian culture is the opposite of the message. Because as we shared on Baptism Sunday, the Great Commission is that every tribe, tongue, and nation gets to know Jesus and gets to be that tribe, that tongue, and that nation in eternity. Which means cultural diversity is good. And God is going to preserve cultural diversity, and probably it's going to continue to evolve to be more diverse in eternity. But soul transformation is imperative for the members of every culture, and every culture has a rear end. Every culture has got something pretty much beautiful about it, and every culture has something pretty insidious about it. And depending on the culture you grow up to, it, in a culture that you have been born into, it's very hard to see what's wrong with that culture. It's very hard to see the rear end of that culture, just like it's hard to see our own rear end, apart from a little handheld mirror. Uh, so the same deal is there is a sense also, but we have this intractable urge to, um, to combine our culture with our faith. There, it's not just a neutral thing. We are either working hard to differentiate our culture of origin from our faith in Jesus, or we are assimilating into the culture. And what I mean by that is we will mix up our values. And we have so many cultures even represented in here. We were given, each of us at birth, given a little suitcase full of inherited values. And it's so easy to put, add those inherited values to the Ten Commandments, or use those values to have a very myopic interpretation of Scripture. To the point where in our culture, there is a lot of Bible verses that don't even exist. They're just American values that people assume were scripture. Um, and uh, so in Galatians, Paul is disrupting this. He abbreviates his normally lengthy introduction because he's 
in a hurry to get to the point. And he is specifically dealing with what would seem a kind of arcane issue to us, and that is he calls them the circumcision crowd, which would be an amazing name for like a punk band, I think. Uh, but uh, this idea that uh, circumcision was one of the many signs for ancient Israel that they were part of a different people group than the rest of the world. And frankly, it's the, it's the hardest slash easiest way to join a culture. It's the hardest because, well, circumcision. It's the easiest because you just do this one body mod and you're cool. And this idea of, in fact, there, one thing to get circumcised as a child, very controversial thing, we're not going into that debate, it's a, a child in a couple of days, but it has got to be probably one of the most horrible traumas I could imagine as an adult man to have to go through in order to follow God. This idea that I would have to go under the knife in order to follow God in my uh, very special areas, <laughs> very private areas. And uh, this is basically taking the love of Jesus plus body mods. It's a, but it was being demanded of by uh, the, the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem in particular. And the thing is, you could transform your body and never have anything happen to your soul. You can assimilate to a culture and be the most un-Christ-like person imaginable. I think in every church, organized church in history, people say, you know, I, I hate organized religion. I said, well, you should see the disorganized stuff. You think the organized stuff can be bad. It's a disorganized religion that really, anyway, that's a rabbit trail. But the thing is, when, uh, when faith becomes overly bureaucratized, people end up legislating a culture instead of paying attention to this more ethereal goal of transformation. And uh, I think this idea that Paul's opposite to all the sinful behaviors in Paul's indicator, Paul's substitute for body modification or submitting to ancient Jewish culture to be a follower of the global Jesus, he gives us a different thing. You know, any guy can go to the temple, you know, you pay your cover charge, they lift up their robe and say, yeah, you're cool, come on in. You know, but there's something harder to fake. You can do, we can do anything outward to our body to try to join something, but the heart is the hardest thing to fake because the heart is borne out by reflex and by crisis, not by nefarious planning and spin. The heart is when life falls apart, when illness hits, when you're called out about some, a character flaw in your life. When the press of life comes out, what's really in comes out. And that's where the fruit of our faith blooms. The fruit of our faith blooms in the prior to fall harvest time of our faith when things seem like they're dying. That's when the fruit is ready. It bears fruit and then the leaves fall right before it seems like the end. And I think in the press of life is when we see the fruit of faith. We don't see it, you know, anyone can uh, be a happy, clappy Christian when they just got uh, a raise and when they just, uh, you know, they're happily married and their kids are at this moment doing really well. But when any of those changes, that's when we see what people really believe. 
when, when, when you're trying desperately to get past something that's been besetting you in your marriage and you're still working on it five years later. That's where we find out what we believe. And the Bible talks about outward signs that we have an inward relationship with Jesus. The Bible is very clear about not judging. I'm not going to make a wholesale judgment about the status of someone's soul, and I definitely don't want to allege that I'm an expert on people's motives. I'm still figuring out my motives on things. So I'm not able to figure out the motives of others. But the Bible uses this metaphor of fruit, meaning the outward sign of something that is happening inward, which within even discussing fruit, there is the presumption that you're going to be a fruit noticer, that you are signing up to notice fruit and to weigh the impact of what you notice and have what you notice inform how you interact with the people around you. So, um, therefore, the big therefore um, gets us a list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And sometimes uh, goodness is translated generosity. You know, you're basically just, wherever you go, you're leaking resource on people in a good way. Wherever you go, you just have resources falling off you. And that doesn't mean you have any money. Some of the wealthiest people I know are scraping dimes together, but they're resourcing people with the love of Christ. I'm talking about you, Kelly Ramey. And uh, this idea of fruitfulness, you can't fake loving someone. You can fake liking someone, but you can't fake loving someone. Joy, have you ever tried to fake joy, like you're excited about something when you're not? It, it's creepy. You know, have you ever, have you ever like, had a, a boss or a coworker that's always got like, this kind of gritted teeth joyfulness? You know, oh my, I'm just waiting for the shoe to drop on this person eventually. You know, the fake joyful person, or the fake joyful, terrifying. Uh, peace, patience, kindness. Patience and kindness, I'm just hit on that because those, these are all just facets of a single gem. I mean, you can't be patient with someone you hate. You, if you love someone, you're kind to them. None of these stand out on their own. You're not gonna find a kind person that is totally impatient. These are all inextricably woven together just like our breathing apparatus and our heart blood pumping apparatus in our brain, all these systems are really one system. So this is not a list of things. If, if I look at this as checklist Christianity, this is another list of things for me to be ashamed of. Once got this book on how to really love your wife, this some best-selling Christian author, uh, sold, and it was basically, had a lot of good things in it, but it also had some elements of like, uh, you know, that my spouse is not some equal co-laborer that's gonna help conquer the world with the love of Jesus alongside. And equal with me, it was more of kind of like this kind of, uh, a delicate little flower that is going to fly away if the husband isn't doing everything. So I didn't agree with that part of the book. But I did have a list of all the things you should do if you love your spouse. And it's one of those things where I know, like, I just called it a shame book. I'd read it on the, I had it in the bathroom, it was a bathroom reader, and every time I read it, I said, oh yeah, try harder. 
So what was the big takeaway from the whole book? Try harder, and maybe you'll be as good of a husband as I, the person who wrote it. Which uh, didn't work. The fruit of the spirit is not something to add to the try harder list. It's the make room for list, because without God, you don't have an ice cube's chance in Fort Lauderdale. All right? Without God, you can't do this. So the fruit of the spirit, in the same way, you can't take a... Uh, an unripe fruit, and if you pull it, it's suddenly going to ripen. The fruit is born when the fruit is born through a long time of making room. None of this happens uh, overnight. But this is the opposite. Making room for God will transform us. And what it looks like for me to show patience in a Cambodian culture is probably going to be somewhat different of what it looks like for me to show patience in an American culture. Now, frankly, in, in Khmer culture, uh, whether someone's impatient or not, no one ever loses their stuff in an argument because you've been great shame upon yourselves if you raise your voice. So there's a million ways to be impatient that don't look like American-style impatience. We're, when we get impatient, we're pretty blatant about it. But in Cambodia... Impatience is going to exhibit itself in a way that someone like me isn't really going to notice it. So I may think someone is really bearing this fruit in Cambodia when really they're just being culturally Cambodian. In the same way, uh, this fruit, this animating power of Jesus in our lives is going to look different every canvas it's painted on. You know, what it looks for a person empowered to be patient is different than what it looks like for someone who is powerless to be patient. But we've access to the same Holy Spirit. And cultural assimilation is a lazy shortcut that gives anyone who's willing to play the game a stick to beat everyone else with, saying, I'm better than you. Listen, anyone can dress up for Halloween. Anyone can put on a costume. But to day in, day out, have people noticing that they can look like, well, Jeff's always been kind of weird and a little off-putting, but over the past two years, I've noticed he's a little less off-putting than he used to be because he listens just a little bit better than he used to be. That's the end-all, be-all of following Jesus, not being this perfect person, but being a transparent work in progress that doesn't have to allege that you've got it together. Rather, you're called to publicly celebrate this life-giving path. You're wrong. So this idea of uh, the gospel without cultural assimilation is going to require a lot of patience and kindness. I love the beginning of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to just read this quick verse. Uh, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is one of you says, I follow Paul. The other says, I follow Apollos. And the other says, I follow Cephas. And then the others say, I follow Christ. Uh, Paul's addressing the fact that the early church, people talk for years to talk about the model of the early church, the early church model. Well, there was no model. There was conflict and there was messiness, just like we find today. They, people fetishize the early church, which I, what I do love about the early church is they didn't bow down to Caesar and they didn't bow down to empire and they didn't, they didn't rationalize violence. But as far as these people mentioned in this list. Let's take Peter. Peter was like this kind of a, uh, I imagine like this Polish Catholic stevedore working at the docks who's really tough 
And if someone is uh, talking bad about anything they uh, equate with their faith, they're going to beat the crap out of them as an expression of faith. And that's kind of like what Peter was like. I think Peter is like this tough blue-collar guy that had this allegiance to how he understand his Jesus-centric Judaism. And if anything would mess with it, his amygdala would turn on right away. And he specifically, we know throughout his life, struggled with going back into like kind of uh, the outward signs of Judaism versus the inward transformation of Christ. So he really fell into almost this racialized system uh, periodically. Then we get Apollos, who we don't know much about other than Apollos never changed his name upon conversion. Apollos was named after Apollo, the son of Zeus, who was kind of an intermediary between people and Zeus, which is interesting. Jesus kind of said, Apollo, I can beat you on that. But anyway, he never changed his name. Can you imagine, like, I was, you know, being named Buddha and pastoring church or, or naming after a, a, a religious figure in another religion or another name, and this guy is named after the son of Zeus. Instead of being a messenger for Zeus, he's a messenger for Jesus, and Jesus don't have lightning bolts. But can you imagine what it would look like to Paul to say, dude, you're named after a false god. You are participating in adultery. You are blaspheming. I mean, I can see some of Paul's followers seeing some of Apollos' followers and saying, you guys are just, you've, you've syncretized your faith with this other deal and you're not the real deal. And then uh, you have uh, Paul, Apollos, Peter, you know, being like the tough guy. And then some people just say, oh, you know, you guys go, I go for the straight dope. Everything we do is just based on what we see in Jesus. And, you know, that's always the worst. Like, well, you know, it's kind of like, like saying, what, what, what's your church or Bible church? What do you mean? Well, everything we believe, everyone else who disagrees with every tenet of our belief is because they don't know how to read the Bible, which people just read the Bible differently. So this idea that... Um, the opposite of culture assimilation. And many of us have felt like we've had culture foisted on us as a way of fitting in. Maybe you're in a culture, your culture values leadership so much. And leader, leadership is important and it's valuable. But imagine being in a church that worships leadership in, instead of Jesus. Then everything's about how are you climbing up this leadership scale and how are you doing it and how are you replicating the ethos of leadership we have. And then Jesus gets lost. You see this, you, you know, you can see uh, a church that uh, values assimilation or uh, inadvertently puts forth assimilation when everyone starts talking or acting like the pastor in a weird, affectatious way. You notice people that use a certain vocabulary that no one else in the real world does, or they have a certain answer to certain kinds of questions, even though generally you get 10 followers of Jesus in a room, you'll get 11 different opinions about things. But when you see everyone in total parody, then you know they've committed to a culture, not a soul-transforming savior. And we're all in danger of this. It shows that Peter fell back into this throughout his life, which just means, okay, so I'm going to screw up. God's going to have me called out on it, and I'm not going to be one inch less loved, despite it. So this soul transformation, I... Living, seeing the emergence, and I know there's been this throughout the history of Christendom, there's been this idea of uh, culture warfare, 
that somehow we marry aspects of our culture to our faith and then we fight for that culture. Where uh, the gospel's always been one to plant in the seed of someone's culture and based on the soil makeup, the flower that comes out may have different color petals. If you plant hydrangeas and depending on the pH balance of the soil, you get different colored flowers. If you put a bunch of coffee grounds, it gets more colorful than without coffee grounds. The soil affects the bloom. And the seed of the gospel, the mustard seed of the kingdom, the bloom is affected by the soil. And one of the things I most greatly valued about spending a significant time overseas is I get a better picture, picture of what real Christianity looks like because I see a culture so different from my own wrestling with the same Jesus and they notice things that I'm blind to because I have a distortion field based on my culture of origin. And what we find is every culture, when it meets the gospel, generally has some gospel insight that other cultures miss. Every culture has some way of understanding the fruit of the spirit that other cultures may not be as privy to. And that's why we're one body. And uh, I'm just barely scraping the surface here. But I'm thinking in terms of when I, I see a lot of people right now, uh, sometimes me included, it's a real struggle to maintain faith in our culture right now. One is because we're not here have just with, I'm just with one chef with five amazing menu items to choose from. We're here at a never-ending food court of ideas, and there may be the best chef in the world, but they may not have the most expensive front end to their display. You may not even see them. But this, this idea that a lot of my struggle in my faith isn't about the Jesus I read about or how I've seen Jesus manifest around the world. It's when I see structures that crank out fruit that is the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. In following Jesus, are you less tolerant of people or more tolerant? Are you more patient or less patient? You know, there's different what I call fruity lists. You know, in Colossians, they're, they're different lists too. They aren't exactly the same when Paul lists these attributes, whether it's uh, Colossians or whether it's the love chapter in Corinthians. But in Colossians, he specifically talks about an implicit uh, value for the spirit. That's humility. All of these things are humble attributes. And this idea that if someone... If I have less humility and I somehow tie to my faith than before I had faith, then something's wrong. And I do think there's this idea that the closer we go to Christ, the more essential Jesus becomes and the more things that are up for grabs. And the idea that the true walk in getting to know Jesus is he, you see how beautiful Jesus is more and more. And then you, along with this tribe of people, you endeavor to find ways to make space for him to, to challenge our culture or utilize our culture. You know, every culture has a superpower, and every culture has something bad. And Christ is going to challenge our cultural problems, and he's going to empower our cultural superpowers to be a part of the global church. But we miss out on that if we put our culture before him. So I know this has been kind of a, I don't know, a more ethereal talk in a way but i did want to say like if you have felt distanced or excluded 
by someone speaking in the name of Jesus being impatient with you. If you have felt excluded by an organization or gathering of Christians that if summarized in one word, it would be unkindness. If you felt excluded or alone because you're not growing fast enough for someone else, or you're not adhering to their order of operations. People have this algebraic order of how people are transformed by Christ, and Christ is like scribbling. I mean, everyone has a slightly different journey, and the Holy Spirit will speak to us and challenge us always. The problem is he doesn't always challenge people in areas we want him to challenge first. But this idea is, I don't think I've ever had an objection to Christianity or to Jesus that had anything to do with someone doing the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. I've not had anyone push me away from Jesus while exhibiting even if I disagree with them. If someone's kind in the way they disagree with you, you can still sense Jesus in them. You know, in fact, I know people who I so disagree with, but we both are irradiated by the same Savior with his love that I don't have any issue with, in a way, because we're, we have the wavelength of love in the presence of Spirit, and someday we're going to not... These disagreements are going to be moot anyway. So... The hope of this next series is, guys, that we can all identify where we need to make room uh, for the gospel. Luis, could you come up here? Where we can all identify where we uh, can make room for Jesus and how we make room for Jesus and how our beliefs and practices can do that. But I wanted to do something here. I wanted to ask everyone to stand while I sit. And who has the communion elements? If someone can bring me one. Uh, so, uh, uh, Galatians 2.20 has this wonderful phrase. It says, the life I live in the body I live by faith. Which in the ancient world, faith was not embodied. Faith was thought about. When Paul says embodied faith, he's actually offering a huge divergence from what was the norm. And... He said, the life I live in the body, I live by faith. And we're asking God to begin a process of planting the fruit of the Spirit in our lives that can take bloom in a way that outwardly goes against the devil's narrative about Jesus. And it's more Jesus' narrative about Jesus. So one body prayer I like doing sometimes is holding my hands out. It's not because it's magic to do this. We don't invoke power. We talk to a Savior that loves us. And so a body prayer, if you want to, I'll invite you to just close your eyes, kind of make this place a private-ish place, hold your hands out. That's just a sign language saying, God, I could use something here. And if you don't feel comfortable, don't. That's fine, too. You don't have to assimilate to this culture of him holding out. But this body prayer, and I'm going to just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come. And I believe the Holy Spirit is going to begin doing something in some of you and might even uh, speak to you on behalf of a kind of encouragement or help someone else needs, or may bring up something that you need to get prayer for today. So I'd like the prayer people to make it to the sides. And let's just take uh, a few, uh, I want to take two minutes, which is forever, and we're just going to be silent. 
And even if you don't feel God's presence, there is a presence in silence even that God repairs our souls. So let's do that. Come Holy Spirit. anyone feel like they're sensing anything? What are you thinking, Louise? I don't know, maybe someone might feel like they've been told that they don't belong somewhere. I felt specifically, and this could, this could probably just, who knows, this, this might just be a, uh, those weird diet drinks I've been having, but I felt like someone, like, on this quadrant room, maybe not, like, uh, is a, a comforter. It feels called to be a comforter, and you feel like your ability to comfort has been so depleted. Like, that your calling is something you don't have the energy for right now, and you just need a filling. And I just encourage, like, you've got these people, get prayer if you are a depleted comforter. When, when Dibdal. Oh, I'm sorry. Is this on, Craig? I think we. I randomly had a bunch of kneading bread. Um,
still kind of working through what I've seen, but kind of a picture of God kneading the bread, us being um, the dough and kind of combining things, pushing into us, but creating something, feeling like, you know, we're all separated, there's different ingredients, but coming together to make something good. Um, so if that resonates with you, I'd love to pray with you. So if that kind of resonates with you in any way, I would encourage you to take the risk and get prayer. Something that came to me was uh, life is uh, chaotic and difficult and challenging and uh, it can be overwhelming at times. And I kind of have the vision of like, in some sense, the whole room kind of being filled up and swirled with water, um, which sounds daunting. Um, but then I think God was saying that, you know, he is filling up the room. His love is washing away the anxieties, the difficulties. Um, he wants to take our burdens and he wants to lift us up. He doesn't want to let us drown by the difficulties of our lives. remember that last night I had a, a pretty odd dream and the only thing that I remember was standing in the middle of the church and looking at that wall over there and it was I don't know like blueprints that were almost animated like some sort of Pixar movie and in these blueprints I saw uh, the shape of um, like a girl reaching down and taking care of plants and just planting and the plants just uh, were being watered and grew and it's ironic because we're going into winter but somehow it, I feel like it's spring or <laughs> summer just I don't know if that makes any sense but that's how I, what I saw. Well, Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed he's eating Passover dinner with his disciples, and uh, he kind of interrupts the dinner, and he takes the Passover bread and he breaks it. Actually, he gave thanks first, because Jesus is like that. Then he uh, broke the bread, and he took the bread and said, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, remember me. And we do this as kind of a pledging our entire allegiance to Jesus as our King, Friend, Father, and Savior. So we can take the elements now. Now let's close and worship together and uh, definitely get prayer today. Lord bless you.